Isaiah chapter 42. We'll be reading nine verses from the text of Isaiah 42. This is one of the several passages in the book of Isaiah that's considered the servant's song. Isaiah 42, beginning at verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light, to the gen- a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before the spring before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Father in heaven, we ask for your spiritual blessing upon the reading of this word. Guide us as we look together into this truth. Let me see. Fat, let us see facets of our Savior, that we might not forget, that we might remember why we celebrate this table this day. It is for the glory of our Lord and Savior we pray. Amen. This is one of the passages, and as I have mentioned, this is one of the passages in Isaiah that's considered the servant's song, speaking and describing about the ministry of our Lord and, J- Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But I want to challenge our thought thinking this morning a little bit. He did come as a servant. He humbled himself. He became lowly. He became meek. He became mild. And he was, in many ways, a servant. But when it comes to our, to use an earthly word, our legal standing before God, we are guilty. We are sinners. We need a mediator. So would it not be a better term to describe the Lord as mediator or representative or attorney? 
He came to serve his father in the working of a covenant of redemption. He didn't come to serve us. He came to serve his father in the working of covenant redemption. We still get the benefit. We are still blessed by it. But he's not our servant. We are his. So we need to remember that. We need to remind ourselves of that. And then Isaiah 41. We just read part of Isaiah 42. Isaiah 41, just to set some context, and I'm going to try my best to work through this quickly, so buckle up and listen. Isaiah 41 begins by saying, Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. All of creation in this text, it, it sounds poetic. It sounds beautiful. It kind of lifts our spirits. Wow, that's beautiful language. But it also tells us that all of creation faithfully obeys God. He has set everything in order, orchestrated to work so that we might have life on this earth and nothing goes out of place, nothing loses synchronicity, nothing goes out of rhythm without his express permission. And as it starts out, listen in silence to me, O coastlands. Creation is there in the core of heaven as God calls his people to accountability. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. So Isaiah 41 is God declaring that a case is before the courts of eternity between himself and his people. Verses 2 through 20, God reminds Israel of his goodness, his protection, his providence, and provision. And in verse 8, he reminds us of his ten faithful, tender, loving care. We even read part of this passage, this brief passage, in as our call to worship. Beginning at 41.8, But you, O Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from the farthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And in verse 11, since he has reminded Israel of his faithful, tender, loving care, in verse 11, he reminds them of his promise of victory and vindication. 41.11 begins by say, right, reading, Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend 
contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. God is good as gracious. God, God is good and gracious to Israel. God is good and gracious to all of his children, even the New Testament church, even you and I. God has promised Israel victory as he promises us victory as well. Encouraging to read this in Isaiah 41, but let me remind you of how the chapter started. I'm setting context for Isaiah 42. Isaiah 41, listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. God had been so very good to Israel, yet they rebelled. That's what the book of Isaiah is all about. So God calls them to the court of judgment. That's what we see in this chapter. In Isaiah 41, 21, the Lord says, Set forth your case. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Let us, excuse me, tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are our gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. When I read this and think about this, I get the sense that God himself, in bringing this charge against Israel, bring your case. Come on. I have been so good to you. I have blessed you. I have protected you. I have promised you victory to all of your enemy, over all of your enemies. And yet, you have the audacity to rebel against me and to neglect my worship and to puff yourself up as though you were a god as well. Tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are God's that's not a possessive word. That's God is accusing them. They are calling themselves gods. Small g. Or do harm, do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. And I'm wondering if God is being facetious or sarcastic here. Verse 24, behold. You are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. He, declared, he who declared it, excuse me, who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say he is right, there is none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there, but when I look, there is no one. 
Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Chapter 41, the people of God are called to court. God presents his case about his goodness, about his promise of victory, and God chastens the nation for her sins. He brings the charges before the court. And then God invites the nation to present some sort of defense for their disobedience, for their rebellion, for their sin. Verse 28, when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Most of you have watched television enough, particularly the murder mysteries and the police mystery movies where they arrest someone you can almost pronounce Miranda rights by heart because you've heard it so much on television. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed for you. That's what's going on right here. The people of Israel, guilty. They needed a defender. They needed an attorney. They could not afford one. There was no one in Israel worthy to do so. In chapter 41... Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He's talking about his son, Jesus Christ. He's talking about the appointed representative, mediator, servant. He is the only mediator appointed by God. He is the only mediator who brings justice. He is the only mediator who offers mercy. He is the only mediator who is so gracious. And our final point will be, he better be the only one you worship. He is the only mediator appointed by God. Out of all of Israel... All of the chosen people of Israel, no one was worthy. Israel was clearly guilty as charged. And the Father chose and provided a representative, a mediator. Someone who would stand between them who were guilty and the holy, righteous God of all. He will bring forth justice to the nations. That, that phrase alone is enough to, if I unpacked it, it could stay there for two hours, but I'm trying to be brief here this morning. We hear a lot of people raging about justice. Earthly justice defined by sinners is never true, pure justice. It's always contaminated. There's always something wrong with it. Everybody in God's eyes comes to earthly courts with dirty hands. Justice defined by sinners. You've heard the arguments. I can distill them down to a couple of quick statements. Whatever you do offends me. Whatever I do offends you. 
I think everybody can agree to disagree on so many things in this world today. And we see people raging about it. They are so offended at those who are socially or morally or even politically conservative. They want us to shut up and go away. And yet we who claim the name of Christ for the past 50 years have been praying and praying and some of us have been demonstrating and standing on picket lines and supporting financially those ministries who have been working and praying for a relief from Roe versus Wade. And finally, we see the answered prayer and we rejoice to see that but don't be surprised at how angry those who are lost have become. They are in a rage because they do not consider this justice at all. Do you understand how this world is so confused about justice? Nations and even people are calling out for justice for so many things. We just talked about the pro-abortionists. They think this Supreme Court decision is so unjust. Black Lives Matter believe that white privilege is so unjust. I can go down the list again and again and again. Everyone just says, it's not fair. I'm offended. I demand justice. We need to stop. This, this, this is something we need to consider. This is something we need to preach. Where is the righteous justice for an offended God? His laws are broken. The tablets lay crumbled in dust at the feet of Moses. And men, generation after generation, have trampled them to dust. Where is the righteous justice for an offended true God? Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot, of vain, plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord who, and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their controls, their cords from us. It's a very powerful psalm talking about how this world is at war with itself, with one another, and yet they still would never have peace with God because they want to be free of him. They don't want him there. They don't want to acknowledge his righteous authority over any of their lives. Let us cut the cords between us and God. Where is the justice that he deserves? Christ is the only mediator appointed by God and is such a powerful task that he was called to do. He is the only mediator who brings true justice. And how will he bring this justice? How will he satisfy an offended God? How could he possibly defend any guilty client and achieve a not guilty verdict before the court of heaven? 
What kind of evidence could he present? What kind of help could he offer? In our text, Isaiah 42, verse 2, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. We love this, this passage about that describes Jesus. This is one of those that point to him as a suffering servant. He just endured so much. In Matthew's gospel, his, his disciples were so excited about his, his power to heal and his words of wisdom and his preaching and his message. And they wanted to let everyone, let everyone know it. And in Matthew 12, the Lord told them not to make him known. Matthew 18 says, This was to fill what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. And then he quotes almost word for word these words from Isaiah I just read. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Kind of an odd way to bring justice. 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. How can such a man satisfy God's demand for justice? Quite frankly, he assumed, he assumed the position of holding all of the guilt. He took upon himself all of your guilt, all of your sin. I am guilty. I have no argument. I have no defense. I am guilty. He paid the penalty. He took the heat. He died. He exchanged his righteousness for your sin. He exchanged his purity for your filth. He exchanged his righteousness for your sin and his purity for your filth. And in God's eyes, his shed blood satisfied the offense of God's broken law. While we, are love, while we love and are comforted and even encouraged by these words, these passages about this suffering servant describing Jesus as meek and mild and humble and lowly, I can't help but think that there is something more to consider. It's that he spoke not a word. He did not cry aloud in the streets. He did not offer any defense. As I've been preparing for study in our study in Revelation, I've also been noticing how many parallel thoughts just seem to appear out of Isaiah. If 
you've ever read the book of Revelation before, you might remember that in Revelation 4, 5, and 6, there are scenes described about John's vision of the court of heaven. John wrote, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the four twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people, for God from every tribe, ransom people for God, from every tribe, tongue, and language, and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, that they shall reign on the earth. John then describes what he sees when the Lamb of God opens the first six seals of the scroll. I'm not going to read that, but then in chapter 8 we see the seventh each one of these seals are a declaration of what God's judgment upon the earth. And then he gets to the seventh seal. Revelation 8, 1, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Christ Jesus on the earth never cried out. He didn't have to. He had all authority on his side. He had all righteousness on his side. He didn't have to say anything to defend himself. How do you defend God and his word? There are many in ministry today who consider themselves experts in apologetics. They offer a defense for the faith of the gospel, the faith of the word of God. And Christ here in the book of Revelation does not have to defend himself for what he has done or what he is, was called to do. Psalm 46.10. Bear with me. Let me draw the pictures. In Isaiah 41, God has called his people to court. He has found no one. He has been good to them. He has been faithful to them. He has promised them and kept promises. He has found no one among their number because they are full of sin. No one who could possibly stand and offer any defense and then he appoints his own son 
whom Isaiah describes as one who was silent and never cries out. And then we look at this in Revelation. And here we have the Lamb of God standing in the court of heaven and he is about to open that final seal and everything gets silent for half an hour. He was silent once in order that he might provide a sin offering. He is silent now in Revelation because everyone is about to receive final judgment. Bringing the two pictures together. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who judges the world. Both appear to us with no need to say anything. Because his word is true. His word is righteous. Psalm 46, beginning at verse 8. Come, behold the works of the Lord. Now he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. In his humility, the Lamb of God needs to say nothing at all. In response to his own silence, every soul should quite frankly, properly, appropriately shut up and stand still. The only mediator who brings true justice satisfies the wrath of the offended father. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Quite frankly, it's a justice you don't deserve. It's a justice I don't deserve. It's, it's not really a justice that I receive. I receive mercy and grace as you do by faith. But the justice belongs to God, the offended one. He is the only mediator who offers mercy. And this mercy is for the guilty. Verse 5 of Isaiah 42, Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. In other words, he's saying, I will use you to glorify my name. You were called for a purpose, brother and sister. You were called to glorify him. You were cleansed by his blood in order that you might be set apart for holy use. A big theological word, you've heard it before. We don't use it every day. You were sanctified. These verses tell us again of his plans for the people he calls to himself. What kind of people are they? What kind of people are you and I? Verse 7, 
of Isaiah 42, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. These people whom he calls, he finds them as people who are spiritually blind. He describes them as people in prison. They weren't in jail. They were in bondage to their sin. And that's how he finds us, spiritually blind and in bondage to our sin. The Apostle Paul very often describes those who are without Christ or those who are lost as being dead in their sins. But he comes as he provides righteousness for the offended God and offers us mercy and grace. He makes us alive. He sets us free. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. What kind of people are captives or prisoners, as Scripture describes? They're prisoners. They're, they're, they're criminals. They're convicted felons. They're sent to jail because they've broken the law. And when the Bible describes prisoners being set free, I'm all in favor of having having churches who begin and participate in prison ministries, reaching the lost who are literally in jail. But when Scripture describes prisoners, it's talking about those who are in bondage to sin, imprisoned by their lust, by their shame, by their guilt, by their greed, they are prisoners to sin. Hebrews 13.3 says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. The book of Hebrews was written for people. Persecution in the Roman Empire had begun, and the book of Hebrews was written for those Christians who had been, they had lost their property, their families had been broken up, they had been put in jail just for preaching the gospel. Just for being identified with, as the Romans called it, Christus, with Christ. So the prisoners there were not criminals in jail. They were people being persecuted. But nearly everywhere else, when the Bible talks about setting prisoners free, he's talking about, it's talking about the Lord Jesus setting us free. Ephesians 4, 7, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. He didn't open up jails. These captives were captives of sin. And he set them free with his redemption. And he... And he bring their souls before God the Father, saying, I provided satisfaction for the guilt and the sin and the crime of all of these 
so that they may be presented to you as righteous children. He is the only mediator who brings justice. He is the only mediator who offers mercy. He is the only mediator who is so gracious. Verse 6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind and bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. It is a gracious ministry to be called to share the gospel with the lost. We should be faithful to do so. And finally, he is, he better be the only one you worship. We have no defense without him. We have no argument of, against God at all. We only have, if it were not for Christ, we would be condemned forever. And we need to recognize that and remember that. Verse 8 of our text, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and the new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. I believe this is the very verse that the Apostle Paul was referring to, Isaiah 42, 9, when he said, Old things have passed away. Behold, everything has become new. All your sin, all your shame, all your crime, all your guilt is gone. It's done away with. You have a new life in Christ as he represents your righteousness as he provides you mercy, that we may live in fellowship with God, our Father and Maker. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for your words, for your truth, and for its power. We ask this day that you might speak to us as your children. As we share this table, let us remember what you have done for us so suffering servant who was also our mediator, our defender, our counselor, who has become our brother Lord, our friend, and even yet is the one we should love and reverence deeply. Let us not forget what he has done for us. We ask this in his holy name. Amen.